0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Uh, If you're a visitor here, I am uh, Brett Vanderzee, the music and preaching minister at The Springs. And uh, (laughs) so that means my voice is important to my job. And as you can hear, I... I have not got a lot of one this morning. Uh, once I get up into certain registers, I sound a little like a 12-year-old boy. No offense to our 12-year-old boys. Beautiful voices. But, um, but anyway, so <laughs> I will be praying for the strength to, to preach, and I hope that won't distract from the message this morning. Um, as I said, I'm the, uh, the music and preaching minister Um, And so not only do I get to preach half the time with uh, my partner in crime, Ben Langford, um, but I also get to lead the music. And uh, that is great because I love music and I've always loved it. I started singing as a little kid and um, picked up the guitar in middle school. However, uh, there's another instrument that I play that you may not have known, um, and that is the trombone actually played trombone um, in uh, from fifth grade actually all the way to senior year of high school however I almost quit because it was eighth grade and I was over playing the trombone not not so much the instrument itself but I was over being in a band directed by Mrs. Skelling now Just as a disclaimer, I've had an amiable, wonderful relationship with probably 98% of the teachers I've ever had, but Mrs. Skelling was not one of those teachers. For some reason, I don't know why, but she really had it out for me. I mean, she definitely did not like me i'm not sure what it was i know i wasn't a perfect student i I wasn't always as prepared as i needed to be maybe i talked a little too much or something but there really was you know kind of a general dislike a general ill will towards me i could i could tell a bunch of stories to illustrate that but let me just say i was done with the trombone i didn't want to play anymore but then something happened mrs skelling was on her way out and Mrs. Newman was on her way in. The good news reached me and and, and everything changed for me. Not only was Mrs. Skelling leaving, but Mrs. Newman, who I knew was a wonderful, jovial, talented music teacher. I I really liked her. I think she liked me definitely more than Mrs. Skelling. So the, the trajectory of my music and my high school career changed in that moment. Something Changed. Something happened in the middle of history and changed my view of it. Good news happened, and that good news was a regime change, was someone's ascension to power, Mrs. Newman. And so last week, Ben um, preached on the first half of Ephesians 1, and, and he did a great job showing us that Ephesians, and our series is titled The Mystery of Us, is this mysterious God's eye view of salvation. That, that it's the view from the eye of London, not just from Oxford Street. It, it's the whole cityscape. And so we got this, this picture of what God's salvation is. We, we got a picture of what salvation is. But what we don't get in the first half and what we are going to get today is the why. So, so the question is, why does Paul believe that God is gathering up all things in Christ? Why does Paul believe in this this cosmic, mysterious plan of salvation? And the answer is a regime change. The answer is that something dramatic happened in the middle of history that altered Paul's view of it. So, so let's go ahead and dive right into the, the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. It says, For this reason, starting in verse 15, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope in which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What an amazing, amazing passage. So, so dense. We, we could spend time on many different parts. Um, but like last week, um, Ben, when he preached 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, that actually, that whole passage is one sentence. And the same with our text this morning. Verses 15 through 23 in the original Greek is actually one sentence long, exuberant, life-filled sentence. And so, so Paul, he, he actually this reinforces the idea, what, what Ben was saying, that Paul may be drawing on early Christian worship in this passage. That, that Paul may be drawing on early Christian hymns or liturgy, and he's singing God's cosmic plan of salvation. And so not only that, his exuberance shows up in other ways as well. Take a look again at verse 19 and 20. He says, And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So do you notice how grammatically amped Paul is? He he is so, so amped in this passage for, for many different reasons, but that incomparably great power Okay, so those three Greek words are, are related to three English words that we have as well: hyper, mega, dynamite. God's hyper mega dynamite. God's incomparably great power. It, it, it's almost over the top. It, it's like super califragilistic, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious power. Like like it's, it's way up there. Paul is so amped and so we we have to ask the question why is paul so excited in this passage what what is is bringing about this this grammatical effusiveness and so the answer to that question is in the previous verse that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised christ from the dead something has happened in the world so incomparable, so great, so powerful, that no amount of language can capture it. Something so mysterious and earth-shattering that that hyper-mega-dynamite can't even capture the nature of it. That, That Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet who went around teaching and healing and preaching, was crucified and raised from the dead. Why does Paul believe God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. This is Paul's proclamation in Ephesians 1. But this is a hard pill for us to swallow, right? Even characters in Scripture, we have accounts of, of people doubting the resurrection in Scripture. Even some of us have faced down doubts, or, or many of us may have friends or family members or coworkers who, who think this Christianity thing is hogwash and think the resurrection in particular, this, this resurrection business is just, it's just nonsense. But in reality, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually quite formidable. And, and so I just want to take a quick moment to, to talk about the three different lines of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that we have. And the first line of evidence is the empty tomb. So if the body would have been there, if they could have recovered it and displayed it, they would have. They, they would, have, would have shown this body, it most definitely would have been. And another interesting point is that the tomb itself in that day, based on those religious practices. We we have no record of Christians making pilgrimages or journeys to Jesus' tomb. And that would have been very in line, very likely with the religious practices of that day. And and so we don't see that. They would have only done that if Jesus' body had been in the tomb. They they would have made this a place of veneration and worship. So so historians view the empty tomb as basically a given. The body was not there. But, But this leads us to our second line of evidence. Because we have to ask, where was the body then? And the second line of evidence is the eyewitness testimony. So people claimed to encounter Jesus Christ after he died. Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 15, a a public document, a public letter, about 20 years after the event of the resurrection. And Paul is able to say, hey, he appeared to hundreds of people And you know what? A lot of these people are still alive. So so Paul's like, you can go out and check with them. You can talk to them about this testimony. And so a lot of these appearances happened in groups as well. So so Jesus uh, wasn't seen just kind of like a hallucination with an individual. It was in large groups at times, groups of people. And one of the most interesting points is that all four gospel accounts of the resurrection list women as the first eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. Why is that interesting? This was a time and place where the testimony of women was not even admissible in court as evidence because of their low social status. So the gospel writers had just been conjuring these stories up, just making these out of thin air, they would have had no reason to make the first primary witnesses of the resurrection women. The only real plausible reason that women would be the first witnesses of the resurrection in the Gospels is if it actually happened. So we've got the empty tomb, and we've got eyewitness testimony. And the third line of evidence is Jesus' followers. So there were actually other messianic movements in those days. There were other people that claimed to be the Messiah, but their movements always fizzled out right after they died. Because your death was proof that you weren't the Jewish Messiah. But we don't find that with Jesus' movement. With Jesus' movement, we find that, that if his story would have ended with his death, it, it would have been remembered as just another failed would-be Messiah. But, but Jesus, his followers, continued to worship. And in fact, they came to a startling, striking conclusion that these Jewish monotheists felt under the obligation to worship a human being, Jesus. Jesus. So, so not only did their Jewish worldview undergo radical alteration, but, but they actually, many of these disciples carried out these beliefs to their deaths, which is not something you do for a hoax that you made up. So, so all of these reasons that Jesus' empty tomb, the eyewitness testimony, the, the followers, this, is, this builds a compelling historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus. However... It's at this point that, that I got to remind us that historical argument alone can't force anyone to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, as, as the most recent and prolific scholar of the resurrection, N.T. Wright, says, that would be like lighting a candle to see whether the sun had risen. What the candles of historical scholarship will do is to show that the room has been disturbed. But it it doesn't look like it did last night. And and that the would-be normal explanations for this won't do. Instead, we are invited to take the risk and open the curtain and see the reality from which the candles take their light. The rising sun. So this is Paul's radical proclamation in Ephesians 1 that, that the mysterious plan of God has launched because Jesus, the crucified Messiah, has risen from the dead. But he doesn't stop there. So, so let's continue on. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, it says that that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You know, we have a tendency to kind of end the story at the resurrection sometimes. But but Paul doesn't stop there. And central to Ephesians 1 is the fact that Jesus has not only been raised, but he's been exalted. And so Paul is actually quoting from Psalm 110, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right, right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is actually the psalm that is most quoted or most alluded to in the New Testament. This is a very important scripture for early Christians because it spoke to the exaltation, the kingship of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says that he's been enthroned in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Paul is, he has in mind here the, the ancient Jewish view of the overlap... Of heaven and earth. That that heaven is not this distant, far off place. Miles or light years away from the earth. But that heaven is God's space. The earth is human space. And that in many ways, they are connected. In many ways, they intersect. So in other words, the heavenly realms is, is a spiritual reality. It's a higher plane where Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the Father. So when Paul talks about exaltation or ascension, he's he's not talking about a a primitive form of space travel. Paul is, is saying that Jesus has been installed at the place of executive power in the cosmos. Jesus is risen and exalted. And guess what? This has major implications for us this morning. This had implications for the Christians in Ephesus, and it has implications for us. So I'm just going to finish quickly this morning with three spiritual blessings that we receive from the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And the first one is new priorities. So in Ephesians 1, 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So when you're called to a new hope, you are also given a set of new priorities. So when a radical event occurs, there's a radical shift in priorities that takes place in the world and in our lives. For instance, a few days ago, we kinda got this forecast of an ice apocalypse, and everybody's priorities changed. I, I headed to the grocery store on the way home, Not to head to the Ben and Jerry's aisle, but to get some firewood. Because firewood is is a necessary thing to keep us alive if our furnace goes out. By the way, grocery store plus icy forecast equals Black Friday. (laughs) It was insane. It was absolutely chaotic, you probably saw it. But people's priorities changed, not only in where they went, but in what they bought. And so, radical events call for radical shifts in priority. And that's what we have in Christ's exaltation. A radical shift has taken place. Life's center of gravity has moved. It's, It's no longer earthly life, but it is the heavenly realm with Christ and God. So because Christ is exalted, I no longer prioritize consumerism because I don't store up treasures on earth. Because Christ is exalted, I no longer seek the approval of human beings. Because I have the approval of the one who's enthroned in the heavenly places. When we have new hope, we have new priorities, and they're the priorities of God's kingdom. And the second spiritual blessing we receive is a new posture. So, verses 20 through 21, Paul says. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul says Jesus is above everything, every ruler, power, authority, dominion. And then he uses this phrase, every name that is invoked. And the New English Translation actually says, every name that is named, and and Paul is actually using kind of a euphemism here. So in in the ancient world, in Eastern Asia Minor, there was one name that was named, and and Paul knew it, and his readers knew it, and that was the name of Caesar. Caesar. Caesar was the name that was named, but Paul has included him in this list of other rulers and types of rule and power, and so in a sense, Paul's demoting him. Paul's relativized Caesar as, as one among many. He, he's cut him down to size, and so this is where we receive our new posture. We no longer bow to Caesar. In the exaltation of Christ, we no longer bow to Caesar. Caesar is just a footnote in the life of the risen and exalted Jesus. So so we now bow to Jesus Christ. We bow. Every knee bows and tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Prince of Peace. And finally our our third and final spiritual blessing that we receive in Christ's exaltation is new power. Let me read verses 18 and 19 again. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So if you haven't noticed yet, power is a big theme in Ephesians. Probably because power was a big theme in Ephesus. This was a very prominent city. They were obsessed with kind of magical power. They were obsessed with with civic and and imperial power in the Roman Empire. But Paul says there's a power that's much greater. There's a hyper-mega-dynamite power. And that's the power of the risen and exalted Jesus in the heavenly places. This is a power that that radically changes everything for Paul. And so I've got to ask us this morning, has it changed anything for you? Has it changed anything for us? Or do you know that power? Do you you know that power of total reliance on Jesus, of total reliance on His Holy Spirit, the power of an identity that's not based in our accomplishments or our striving, but an identity based in the One, the powerful One who became powerless, went to the cross and redeemed us and was raised to new life and exalted that's the power that's the power of the resurrection and the power of the exaltation church has it changed anything it's the only power worth knowing because it's the only power that doesn't involve the selling of your soul but the saving of it if you'd like to know more about that resurrection power I want to invite you to come forward as we stand together and praise the risen and exalted Jesus together